Open your Bibles. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. I, I love watching you guys like coming to church, and it's in a day and age where everything's digital, and some of you like have a Bible. That's awesome, and thank you for bringing this. You should not just take my word for it, you know, what I say. You should really be, the Bible calls it being a, a, a diligent seeker. There was a group called Bereans. Sometimes people are like, the Bereans are the people who search the scriptures to make sure what was being taught was actually in the scriptures, and we want to be that type of church. Luke 16 is where we're going to be today, and um, I'd like for us to pray before we jump in this morning. Would you join me? Father. We come before your word today asking you to speak. Help our hearts to listen and help our souls to hear. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, there's this little phrase that we use from time to time. I don't know if you've ever recognized that this is a phrase that we use, but I, I, I've heard it a couple times. Um, it's the phrase, take my word for it. Take my word for it. You just look at the person next to you and say, this is going to be uh, one heck of a sermon. You take my word for it. Just go ahead. Just tell, tell them. I was going to say a different word because what we're talking about today, but that's, that's a different story. Um, take my word for it. Take my word for it. You, uh, you hear that said back to you, and if it's said in a patronizing enough way, you can be like, why would I take your word for it? Like, who are you, dude? I don't, I don't know you. Like, I don't know what your word's good for. Or um, if you've ever, we've kind of made this adjustment in our society from being like, you know, uh, people understood things, knew things, knew the best way to do things, and now technology kind of knows things and understands things and knows the best way to do things, and we all are just like super reliant upon Google to get us from point A to point B. And the other day, um, Kristen and I were going to a wedding, and um, she, she said, well, hey, Google's telling you to go straight. And I was like, no, 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 take my word for it, it's this way. I know, I lived around here, I know where we're going. And lo and behold, one, one point for humans, I won. I said, take my word for it, right? I remember when Kristen and I bought our house, um, depending on who you're talking to and what the deal is, you, this phrase, take my word for it, it, it carries a certain skepticism to it. Because when we're buying our house, you know, you, you go and you, um, you do the inspections, you figure out everything that's right or wrong with the house, and then you, you have confidence in your purchase. And then we sat at the table, we were about ready to sign our documents, and the lender asked the, the seller, hey, uh, there's nothing on here about the sump pump. And I, I wasn't born yesterday, I know a sump pump's kind of an important part of a house, you know, like I, I came back a couple months ago in the middle of this ice storm that like everybody was running out to Home Depot buying sump pumps because you had to get water out of your basement. And I looked at the guy and said, no sump pump? How is there no sump pump in this house? And he looked back at me across the table and he said, Dan, that is the driest basement I've ever seen in my life. You take my word for it. This is like a hundreds of thousands of dollars deal right here. No sump pump, what are we, am I crazy? And I remember sitting there going, he said, okay, and signed our life away, right? Take my word for it. Your, your, your word is only as good as we know who you are. And in this passage that we have before us, we could see all the characters in it just speaking to us, calling to us, saying, hey, take my word for it. And in us, there is this, uh, skepticism of whether or not we want to believe what is being said. 
And with that, I want to jump into the, to the story. This is a story that Jesus told people around him, mostly Jews in this day. And it has very uh, poignant relevance to our lives today. Join me in, in uh, Luke 16, verse 19. Are you all there? You all there? Luke 16, verse 19. Verse 19. You're there? Say, I'm there. All right, let's go. Jesus said this, told a story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. I just want to stop right there because in my mind, this is like a movie. And uh, like the director has this like massive, like Wayne Manor. If you ever seen Batman, it's like this gorgeous old like English estate. And um, there's like this drone that's flying across the, the, the landscaping. And it's beautiful. It's perfectly manicured. It just looks amazing. Like, like everybody, everyone wants their house to look like this. And it's, it flies in through a window and it sees this giant dining room with this man sitting at the end of it. And on this table is just a Thanksgiving feast. All for himself. Jesus tells us that he was clothed in purple and fine linen, which today, that's like, I don't know, Versace. It's like uh, having uh, Tiffany's diamonds on all of your fingers. Uh, this guy was living it up. He had the house that everybody wanted. He had the wardrobe that was uh, more expensive than all of our collective salaries. And he feasted sumptuously not just like the wedding feast that you throw for your daughter once in your lifetime. Every day. Every day. We're talking ridiculous wealth right here. And then notice what Jesus says. At his gate, so this guy is wealthy enough that he has a gate that kind of keeps himself secluded from the rest of the world. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with whatever fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his swords. The camera has panned out of this rich man's house. This, I, I've, all I can think of is this is the, the rich man who is in that limo who's asking the questions, pardon me, do you have any gray poupon? Right, this is that guy. Pulls out of the house over a fountain where you see the Maserati and the Rolls Royce and the Bugatti all parked next to each other down the hallway to the gate. The gate that's got his big crest on it. And tells everybody who lives inside the gate. It's his security. It's his comfort. It's his palace. And this is the first moment where we see that this is not just paradise. This is someplace nearby. This is real life. Because at this rich man's gate, is laying someone who I'm sure he would not want around. In all of Jesus' stories, he starts out by giving context with characters. He says a man had two sons, or uh, a man went out to sow field, or, or a woman had a coin, right? This is the only story in all of recorded scripture where Jesus gives the character a name, the name Lazarus. Some of you are good Bible students. You remember in John uh, that, that, that Jesus had a friend named Lazarus who he brought back to life. And um, that's a different guy, not the same guy. That Lazarus was, is not this guy. And Jesus is telling us that this poor man who's at the gate of this rich man's house is crippled. He doesn't wear clothing. He wears sores on his body. He has no food to feast on sumptuously. Instead, his hand is reaching up to the passerbyers who are going in and out of the palace and just asking, hey, did anything fall off the guy's table? Can I have just a scrap? This man is named Lazarus, which ironically enough means the one whom God helps. 
Because if you were to look at his life, to see the contrast, the juxtaposition, so to speak, of the rich man and Lazarus, it would be common for us to think that the rich man is the one whom God helps. Like the rich man's name should be Lazarus. And yet, Jesus says, this poor, crippled, so unable to help himself and so disgusting that the wild dogs would come around and lick him and Lazarus could do nothing about it, this guy is the one whom God helps. Lazarus, it said, is, is laid at the gate, which we can assume at some point a few men lifted the man in his mat and placed him in the shadow of the gate. We see this, that he's disgusting, he's repulsive, he's unclean, he's a beggar. And we would describe this as living in hell on earth. And yet, this goes on until Lazarus dies. And look at verse 22 with me, what Jesus says is his fate. Verse 22. The poor man died, Lazarus, and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Now that's pretty awesome. Can we imagine that? They're all in favor of you die carried by angels to Abraham's side, yeah? Just me? I'm kind of like hoping that's my ride, Okay. Carried by angels. He gets like the Monty Python sort of picture of like this guy floating across the, <laughs> up to Abraham's side. But notice what doesn't happen. The poor man dies and he's carried away. But in the Jewish world, when you died, the first thing that you had to tend to was the body. And in life, here on earth, this man had no one around to help him that we believe he didn't have a burial. His body was left to be tormented by dogs here on earth. It was left uncovered in an open grave. And the total opposite happened for the rich man. Look at this. The rich man also died, Jesus tells us, and he was buried. We can imagine what a funeral that must have been. This man was opulent in life. Why wouldn't he be opulent in death? He was the type of man who threw parties all the time, who had lots of friends. And I imagine all of his dinner party guests would have showed up to mourn the fact that no longer would they be celebrating at Gatsby's house. No longer would they be enjoying every day the riches of his uh, house. He probably hired professional mourners. People in this day, they would uh, make sure kings and royal officials would make sure that there was enough crying at their funeral. They would actually hire in advance people to come cry for them. We believe this guy, this rich man, would have hired the best. And yet here is his reality. Filthy rich one day, dead the next. Living in torment, look again at the verse, in hell. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, he's far away, and Lazarus was at his side. wonder what a head-scratching moment this must have been for the rich man, who his whole entire life had servants and people with him and had always thrown and hosted the banquet, only to find that at the end of his life, there was a banquet happening in another place with different guests, and he wasn't invited. In the wake of this verse, I hear it in my mind, the words that Jesus spoke earlier in Luke chapter 6. 
Just 10 chapters earlier, Luke records these words of Jesus. You can almost frame these words of Jesus that he spoke in Luke 6 as just, just him, him saying, hey, take my word for it. Listen, listen to what Jesus said. You remember these words. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you when other people hate you and when they exclude you and revile and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. We can imagine this crippled Lazarus leaping for joy in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And if it stopped there, we'd all be excited, but Jesus continues. He says, but, everybody say but. It's an important word. Jesus is showing us that there's two ways here. But woe to you who are rich. Why? Because in your riches you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. What Jesus predicted in his Sermon on the Mount, he illustrated it here with the rich man and Lazarus. They were different in life. They were certainly different in their deaths. And before we move on too, too much, I mean, we have to understand something very basic, that, 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 that Lazarus didn't gain admission into paradise and, and the rich man wasn't condemned to hell because of their finances. Hear me clearly. Jesus is going to unpack this in a little bit, but um, here's, here's was very simply why I know that's true. Because in the Bible, the richest man in, you know, we could argue for Solomon, but I'm going to argue for the richest man in the Bible is actually Abraham. Abraham uh, was a guy who, by faith, God uh, told, go move across the earth, take all your possessions, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm gonna give you a, a blessing, and I'm going to give you offspring. And all the Jews have as their father, Abraham, who is the, one of the wealthiest dudes in the Bible. And guess where Abraham is at the end of his life? He's hosting a party in heaven, okay? So we can get out of our mind right now that the sin that the rich man committed was having wealth, okay? Not his sin, his sin in, in a different way, Jesus wants to show us very simply what separates these men was actually their faith. And to make this point, notice how Jesus leads us to see that it's faith in God that determines the path of the rich man. Because it's very interesting in verse 24, the, the man who we assume had very little religious life, all of a sudden in hell, he begins to pray. Check this out. Look what he says. Verse 24. And the rich man called out from hell, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember, in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in, his, in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg of you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that, they may, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. 
You hear from the rich man this cry, this desire, this change of heart, essentially. It says, Father Abraham, which is essentially a plea, a call, a beg on the genealogy that he had inherited. I'm a Jew. Shouldn't you look towards me and be kind to me? The realization hits this rich man that life on earth is, earth is over and his current residence is not as cushy, cushy as his previous address. His plea, it's a cry stemming from the heritage that thought they were guaranteed interest into paradise because of their stemming from the line of Abraham. And we remember Jesus is primarily teaching Jews here. And Abraham would have been the patriarch of God's chosen people. They would have been crushed at this thought that one of their own was sent to hell. It was actually thought that if anyone should be reclining at the heavenly banquet, it would be the wealthy, predominant Jews. And yet still, somehow, the rich man is dead and his soul isn't in heaven continuing on in his blessed life. It's really in hell. And his place has been exchanged with Lazarus. And I don't think this is the main lesson that Jesus is teaching us through Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31. But I think these are primary lessons that we have to learn about hell from this passage. And the, there's, there's three of them. I want you to note this. So important that we talk about this today because, um, well, there, we have a lot of misconceptions. The first thing that we see about hell in this passage from Jesus is this, is that hell is real. Hell is a real place. See, Jesus, in all of his teachings, always teaches about things that are common to our experience in life and earth. Jesus shared stories about a man going out and planting a field, and we relate to that. Jesus told stories about a woman uh, losing a ring, and we relate to that. Jesus told stories about a man having trouble with his younger son and him going away, and we relate to that. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus never did what L. Ron Hubbard did, which was create this fantastical world that was completely disconnected from our current reality? You, you go read the readings of Scientology, and you kind of feel like you're in a sci-fi fiction book itself. And yet everything that Jesus ever taught, everything that he ever said, was grounded here in the earthiness of our lives. He always spoke to that which is. The Apostle Paul, in his writings, advanced in the New Testament this theology more fully and recognized that this life is but a prelude of the things to come. Peter, who was an apostle, he wrote that Christians are like aliens to this world because we really belong to the kingdom of God in heaven. John, one of the disciples that Jesus loved, he was given a revelation. He wrote, wrote it down, the things to come, when Jesus would judge the works of men and those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life who are going to experience blessing and riches forevermore in heaven. And those who rejected Jesus on earth will experience eternal separation from God forever. Jesus is teaching us that hell is real. And it is filling with real people, with real souls. And yet too many times we don't want to take Jesus' word for it. Too many times we treat heaven and hell as if they're just mythical creations like the fires of Mordor and Candyland. Many choose to ignore the idea of hell and convince themselves that at the end of life all of this just, just cease to exist with no purpose, no point at all. 
And to this, uh, T.S. Eliot, the author, once said, I'd far rather walk as I do in daily terror of eternity than feel that this was only a children's game in which all of the contestants would get equally worthless prizes in the end. To say that hell is real is one of the greatest concessions that the rational mind can make. For us to acknowledge the existence of a place so awful that we wouldn't create left to ourselves. And I doubt Jesus here stumbled over this parable the same way we stumble over it today in our enlightened minds with our own preferences. Recently, much debate has been sparked over the doctrine of hell causing many people, even pastors, to come to the conclusion that hell is not real. Or if it was real, no loving God would damn people to it. Even recently, a couple of weeks ago, the Pope joined in this refrain. And I would say this is just one of the reasons we want to make sure very clearly that we, we here at Bethel Church don't mix up our politics with our theology. Because just because something has fallen out of vogue in our society today doesn't mean that we can deny it when the Bible clearly asserts it. And instead, people who deny the existence of heaven and hell forget the character of God and the wickedness of sin. We believe God is holy. We believe that God, philosophically if he is God, he is the perfect expression of all things that are pure and right and good and unholy. We believe in his word that he has told us so. Time and time again, I, the Lord, am holy. That means that God is without sin. We also believe God is also just, meaning he judges the earth fairly. And God's love for us is a holy love. The way God loves his creation is, is in some way profoundly greater than the love that a dad has for his daughter. It's profoundly greater than the love that a mother has for her son. The love that God has for you and I is profoundly greater than the love that could even be on display at a wedding altar where two, couple, two people become a couple and they say, I do. The love that God has for us is not some cheap substitute love. It is the epitome of holy love, perfect love, unparalleled, matchless love. And yet because that's true, because God's love is holy, the penalty of sin is death. This means God would have to be unjust to prevent sinners from entering into hell, which is what we deserve. But you remember that verse that's so famous, it's all over the place. It's kind of like a cult cultural cliche these days, John three sixteen, which let me just remind you, it says this, for God so, so loved. He didn't just love. He's so loved. That's, that's like, that's like 2.0 love. It's right? like some of you love your car, but God so loves you. It's a totally different thing. He so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not be vanquished in hell, but would have everlasting life. Romans 3, which we're going to get to in the coming Sundays here, tells us that by sending Christ to die in our place, God remained just because Christ bore the brunt of the wrath of God for sin, but also God became the justifier of many for those who would believe in the Son of God. 
by his death and his resurrection, by his payment for our sins, we have salvation. What are we saved from? Friends, we are saved from the justice of God. Shown in the fact that we deserve hell. So the question then becomes not, you know, if there is a hell, but rather if there is a Jesus. If Jesus died for our sins, why does God still send people to hell? That's what people ask today. If, if your Jesus is so great, then why hasn't he saved everybody? Doesn't love win in the end? And yet God doesn't, this is so helpful for us, God doesn't send people to hell. People who are unbelieving in their hearts have made that decision to disregard God and have stamped their own ticket in eternity. For us as a church, we've just walked through this whole study on Romans, and Romans chapter 1 reminds us time and time and time and time again, God gave them up. God gave them up. In his wrath, he said simply, you don't want me? Okay. Have it your way. C.S. Lewis was told a a long time ago about a gravestone inscription that read, here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. Lewis replied very quietly, I bet he wishes that were so. Because not only is hell real, hell is torment. Four times in this passage, you can look back at it, four times in this passage the word torment or anguish is used to describe the condition of the rich man. And we, we are funny people. We want to know like, so like on a scale of one to ten, we talking like a seven, an eight, you know, like you got the chart of the doctor that like essentially says like it's, it's the smiley face chart. And you want to look at it and be like, really, am I four? And uh, they're, they're like, well, what, what, what's your pain at? And one of them's like a guy with the, the flames coming out of his head. And you're like, whatever that is times two, right? And we're curious. We want to know like how, how, how like can I take it? I'm like I bet I could take it. Like in our wickedness, we, we want to evaluate the levels of torment in hell. And, and you know what? I don't know what this torment looks like. Uh, the rich man calls them flames, but we don't know if that's the eternal fire, it, what happens. But Jesus gives us insight here into what this torment is actually all about. He gives us three, three uh, realities of this torment. And first, it's, it's that um, this torment is conscious. It's clear that Lazarus knows that he is in paradise and the rich man knows he's in hell. It's conscious. And we are conscious in heaven just like we would be conscious in hell. And some of us have made, or some people have made claims that after death the soul is separated from the body. It just falls into this unconscious state of sleep. It's as if God is a merciful God who doesn't want people to experience suffering in hell and so he causes their soul to go into sleep. It's appropriately called soul sleep. And um, the number one problem with that is essentially the Bible. Because this story shows us that the rich man knows that he's in torment and agony in hell. And, and likewise, Lazarus knows that he's reclining in a place of comfort. This torment is conscious, but this torment is also unquenchable. Look at what the rich man says. He says, send me some water. Even my tongue is on fire. Help! There's no relief ever. Probably what more widely accepted today than the idea of soul sleep is this idea of annihilationism. 
That, that essentially says that um, the soul just ceases to exist at uh, death, but actually, really, what, what the technical annihilation uh, is, is that the soul experiences the fires of hell for an instant. But the fire of hell is so hot, it's God's act of mercy on the sinner that the soul cannot withstand the fire, and it burns up, and that is their relief. The problem with this idea is that there's no end to the anguish of those in hell. There's no escape. This is Revelation chapter 14. It says, The punishment in hell of those who follow the Antichrist is that the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, not stopping, not even for a moment. Finally, this torment is lonely. There's no mention of anyone else around the man in hell while Lazarus is hanging out with Abraham and the many gathered at the banquet table. See, see, heaven is a place that gathers. Heaven is a place of community, ultimate community where, you know, kind of what we do here at church is we're building community and yet in heaven we'll experience the greatest community. And likewise, hell is a place of isolation. Hell, it's been said, is, the, is a, a, a realm filled with ghettos where people can't wait to get farther apart from one another. So many people think, well, hell's going to be fine and the party's never going to stop. But we learn from Jesus, you can take his word for it, that hell is a place of desertion and separation and isolation. And so hell is real. It is a place of conscious, unquenchable lonely torment. And here's a third reality Jesus teaches us about hell. Hell is final. Hell is final. Abraham explains it best. Look at verse uh, 25 of Luke 16. Hang in there with me. Hang in there. Look at this. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner his bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. A gate exists. That's ironic for this rich man. There's a gate that's preventing you from coming to us and preventing us from coming to you. There is no escape. Hell is final. There is truly one life for us to live, and there's truly one death. And the decisions that we make the people that we become and the things that we trust in, they seal our lives shut. This rich man cannot escape the finality of hell. His own character had chosen the good things of life on earth and decided to leave God out of his life when he was alive. And now in his death, he could no longer change his character nor his destiny, which is a hard truth to hear but one that we need to know there are no second chances to this life. And not only could this rich man do nothing about his own state, it's only in hell that his heart begins to break for his family members. It's only in hell does his heart begin to break for the ones who his heart should have broke for while he was on earth. Notice what he says, verse 27. He says, well, if it's, too late, if it's too late for me, then I beg of you, Father, send Lazarus, that guy, he used to be at my gate, he knows my father's house, send him, for I have five brothers, so he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Well, isn't that interesting? 
This well-to-do, exclusive, highly sought-after millionaire who can't be helped by anyone, all of a sudden in hell turns into a concerned relational philanthropist. In revealing this information that he has five brothers, the man is also condemning himself as a Scrooge. He lived in the lap of luxury and wouldn't share with Lazarus, who was his neighbor at the gate. And now we found out that not only did he hold things back from the man who was his neighbor, but he also held things back from his brothers. You'd imagine a guy with mansions and all this food would have had a place for his brothers to live. But where did they live? At his father's house. Packed in with dad. Never sharing the wealth. Never inviting them over for Thanksgiving. Never, never in, in life did he have a care for them. But here in death, he says, this is so bad. I want for even them, who I didn't even care about in life. I, they have to hear this. They need to take my word for it. If they hear it from me, they'll understand and they'll agree. Maybe they can be saved. And yet, from beyond the grave, he hopes for a message of salvation. Send Lazarus. This is interesting because in the ancient days, um, Jewish stories from this time period had many ideas of people coming back from beyond the grave to share wisdom or stories with the people who are still living, almost as if uh, to give a moral or a, or, a, or a lesson to them. And so the hearers of Jesus' story here would have not blinked twice at this. For us, it's kind of a little like, oh, that's, that's weird. But we have our own ways where this happens. Every Christmas, we watch that Christmas carol where um, Ebenezer Scrooge is haunted by the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. And they each come back from the other side of the grave with a message for him to say, hey, and so it would have been customary for this to happen. And notice how Jesus handles this thought of someone coming back from the dead to warn the living about the perils of hell. Verse 29. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. It's almost like, no. No, man. Like, I know that's good for fiction, but, but they already have the story that they need. They already have the testimony that they need from Moses and the prophets. And it's to say that those who are awaiting judgment in hell have a concern for the lost, but they're unable to do anything about it because death and hell are final. In refusing to allow Lazarus to go beyond the grave to those who are still alive, Jesus cites Moses and the prophets as if they were still speaking. And that's a code. I don't know if you know how the Bible talks about itself sometimes, but that's a code. The way Jesus would talk about it would be Moses and the prophets. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, and then the rest of the Old Testament is historical books and poetry, but they used to call it just Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament. Jesus is saying here, they already have what they need. Someone is already speaking to them. If they would just open their ears, they would hear them. See, to Jesus, hearing is the key to both heaven and hell. The last two verses of this tragic story push us even further into this idea. Look at what this rich man's reply is. Look at the audacity that he shows. Verse 30, he says, No, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And just let's, let's think about our own lives for a moment as we consider this line of reasoning. 
What, what the rich man is saying from hell is, listen, they don't need more words. They just need some miracle. Could you show them a sign? Could you have someone come back from the dead? They would certainly listen to that person. And how often is that the refrain of our enlightened world today? Like, 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 God, we don't need your Bible. I don't need your word. I just need an experience. Just give me a sign. Just, just tell me what to do. I want an audible voice, and then I'll follow you. It's as if we say there's nothing here. God's word can't be taken for truth. And listen to the con- condemnation that flows out of Jesus' mouth in verse 31. He says this. They said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And the, Jesus kind of just did this, like boom, boom. And it's like Jesus' mic drop right there. Because who was going to rise from the dead? That's not a rhetorical question, I guess. It's a heavy message. I know you don't want to talk, but um, who, who did Jesus know was going to rise from the dead? Himself. You know, it's fascinating to me. At the end of Matthew, Jesus shows up to his disciples from the other side of the grave. Matthew chapter 20, right before the Great Commission, Jesus assembled his team. He's about to change the world. And the Bible says, when they saw him, they believed, but some doubted. Which is to say, you saw Jesus on Friday be killed. You saw him that evening go into the grave and be sealed. And you're standing here today now, days later, seeing him alive. It's not just bad fish that you ate, but you have the audacity to be like, I don't know. I just don't know if that's the same dude. And to Jesus, the key to us when we think of this forever future we have in heaven and in hell hinges solely upon one thing. It's not how much money you had. It's not even what you did with that money when you had it. It's definitely not who you're related to. It's not about what you believed or where you went on Sundays. The one determining factor is do you take his word for it that he's God? The Bible bears witness to all that Jesus is and and said. The Bible bears witness to the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible bears witness to the fact that that 2,000 years ago, Jesus started a revolution that somehow amazingly found its way from um, Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. These are all places where there's just tons of, these are headlines in our newspapers today of these places, all the way around the world to here to Hobart, Indiana. Like, have you ever, ever, ever thought about how mind-blowingly miraculous this movement of God has been? Where what he said he would do in blessing all the nations through his people, he has done by sending Jesus to the cross to be a blessing for us, that we might be blessed through him, that we may then in turn be a blessing for others. Have you ever imagined how much the spread of the gospel is the very fulfillment of the words that Jesus said Almost to say, hey, take my word for it. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What he said he would do, he has done. And for us, we have to ask this question. Do you believe? 
Because no matter, no matter what you feel, no matter who you are, this is the decision we all have to make. And in these parables, these closing statements from Jesus are often the most important. And this parable's abrupt ending gives us a clue that Jesus' main point in his teaching from the story is illustrated here at the end. That those who hear Moses and the prophets, those who hear the word of God and obey it by faith are the ones who have passed from death to life. Those who understand God's message of hope and love and in freedom from sin through the work of Christ on our behalf are no longer destined to eternity apart from God, but instead will be honored at his banquet table in paradise. I know we're talking about hell, but that's the spot for the amen. Should I say that again? Okay, okay. I know, I've got these long sentences that you don't always hear. Those who understand God's message of hope and love and freedom from sin... Through the work of Christ on our behalf, they are no longer destined to eternity apart from God, but instead will be honored at his banquet table in paradise. In a couple of months, we're going to get to this verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. And Paul says this, he says, so faith, if we could put that up there, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of God. Jesus' teaching to us is that it's only faith in Jesus that can save us from eternal torment. And that faith comes from hearing and obeying God's word. I wonder what, in your mind, distinguishes these two men. They were different on all accounts. The rich man had seemingly everything, yet lacked faith in the word of God. The Lazarus had nothing, no food, no fancy clothes, no home, no health. And yet he had faith, which means he had everything. I don't know the bills that you're facing or the legal proceedings you're up against. I don't know if you look at your business and you think, like, I just don't know how this pays itself out. I don't know if you're looking at your family and your kids are a mess and they're all over the place and you've got this relational discord and it feels like you have nothing. But friend, can I tell you, like Lazarus, if you have faith in Christ, you have everything. Because you have hope. The ultimate hope for life with God. So here's the question. Do you take Jesus' word for it? I can't answer that for you. I'm just the messenger today. Jesus has spoken. He's told us that heaven and hell are real. It's how you respond to him that determines what that looks like for you. And so here in this moment right now, I just want us to, to pause. I have no agenda. We're about out of time, but we're just going to pause for a moment. I want you to close your eyes. Some of you have heard this message, and you still are suspicious. You say, I can't believe a good God would send me to hell. And friend, right now, I just ask that you would talk to the Lord. Ask him to show you the reality of your heart the need that you have for him. And then know that his word says that he died to set you free. He died to give you new life. He died that we might live. 
And I encourage you today, right now, to say, God, I take your word for it that you love me. And so you died for me to give me new life that I don't deserve. Save me from what I do deserve. Shape me to be someone who loves you all the more and believes in you. So many today need to pray the prayer of the man in the Gospels who said, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And others of us now, we reflect upon the life that we've lived and we know that our life is secure in Christ, but we hear this and it lights a fire in us to live in such a way that we might not wait until we die to send someone to our family members, but we realize that we're sent to them right now to share the love and the salvation of Christ. Salvation that puts families back together. Salvation that allows us to take hope in the midst of the darkest times. Might you, even in this moment here, as you reflect and you talk to the Lord, just thank him for the fact that he is a God who saves. Just now, talk to the Lord.